This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in again this week. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest from about 18 months ago, Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. He's also a writer and public speaker. He also served as longtime advisor and chief of staff to former Congressman Dr. Ron Paul. And I look forward to having uh, Jeff on today's program in segments two and three. You know, there's a lot going on uh, with Washington talking about passing another stimulus package. But behind the scenes, you have states and many municipalities that are really suffering financially. And we're not even beginning to see the beginning of of the fallout from this financial suffering because while the federal government actually has access to freshly printed money, states and cities do not. They have to balance their budgets. This is about to cause a lot of economic pain. Now, past RLA radio guest, Mr. John Rubino, who was on the program about a month ago, had this to say on the topic this past week. He said, lacking monetary printing presses, U.S. cities and states tend to behave more like normal economic entities than do most nations. See, cities and states have to operate like you and I do. We can't spend more than we take in for an extended period of time. That leads to the result of bankruptcy. That is not true, at least yet, on the federal level. Mr. Rubino says that these cities and states are always balanced on the knife edge of insolvency as taxes fail to cover the promises. And the promises, of course, he's referring to are that mayors of certain cities and governors of certain states have made to voters. He said, when you toss in the COVID-19 lockdowns and continuing riots, many, if not most, American cities and states are looking at functional bankruptcy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means teachers will get laid off. Cops will get laid off, librarians will get laid off, and just about every other kind of city or state employee will be laid off. In many cities, this means trash won't be collected. It means libraries won't open and 911 calls won't be taken. Mr. Rubino comments that many American cities look more like Caracas than Zurich. Caracas, of course, is the capital of Venezuela. Now, Rubino said the one hope that mayors of cities and governors of states have is that there will be a massive federal bailout. These cities and states will be able to plug in to the Federal Reserve's printing press, so to speak, and get some of this seemingly plentiful newly created money. Well, a federal bailout would paper over perhaps unfunded pensions, or maybe I should say underfunded pensions. It may paper over ongoing operating deficits, but this policy 
is not without a cost. As I talked about, taxes are imminent. These shortfalls will either be financed through taxes that are direct taxes, like sales tax and perhaps income tax, or maybe a value added or some other creative type of tax, or they will be funded by an inflation tax. And an inflation tax, as I talked about on the program last week with Peter Schiff, is a tax on savers and investors. That tax, depending on how we are invested, will affect you and me. See, an inflation tax just means that the dollars you have saved, the money you have put away for perhaps your retirement, won't buy in the future what it did in the past. And the more of this money that's created, the more purchasing power these stored dollars lose and the greater the inflation tax. It's important to understand there is no free lunch. Now, the whole idea of a federal bailout, Mr. Rubino writes, seemed imminent just a couple weeks ago. After all, in an election year, how can Washington allow carnage? I mean, it doesn't play well in an election year if trash is not being collected, if libraries are closed, and 9-11 calls, 911 calls are not being answered. But now, this whole idea of an imminent bailout for states and for some cities seems to be off the table, and perhaps it's not even inevitable. Perhaps we will see this carnage. Republicans, who really don't care too much about big cities run by the opposition, and Democrats, who desperately want a bailout, but maybe not as much as they want to try to crush Trump in November, can't agree on a new plan. I happen to agree completely with Mr. Rubino. Now, the Associated Press commented on the size of this problem facing states and facing cities. Moody's analytics found that states will need an additional $312 billion to balance their budgets over the next two years, while local governments would need close to $200 billion. So we have a half a trillion dollar problem. But what's another half a trillion among friends. See, many states are already staring at huge ledgers of red ink. Texas is projecting a $4.6 billion deficit, and the economy in Texas is arguably better than economies in many other states. In Pennsylvania, $9 billion. In Washington State, $11 billion. California's budget includes $11 billion in cuts to colleges and universities, the court system, housing programs, and state worker salaries. So what's going to happen? Well, I'm recording this program on Wednesday, about four days before it ultimately airs. And perhaps there's even a development that's taken place in the time that has passed since this program has been recorded. Whether or not that has happened, this is an election year, and there will probably be some additional form of stimulus. And it's important to remember, as I said, 
that regardless as to the extent that state and city governments are included in the package, here's the bottom line. There's no money. There is no money to pay for such a package without once again resorting to the printing press and simply creating the money that's needed to fund additional spending. Let me go back to my prior point. That is the problem. Nothing is free. As I said, there is always a tax to pay. Either an actual tax, as I said, where the government actually has you parting with some of your hard-earned dollars, or an inflation tax where the value of the currency is diminished. Now, if you listened to last week's program, my guest expert, Mr. Peter Schiff, commented that at the present time, 60 cents out of every dollar that the United States spends is created by the Federal Reserve as the lender of last resort. As I'll discuss with Jeff Dice today, when the year 2020 began, We expected there would be a $1 trillion operating deficit at the federal level. Now, prior to any bailouts, the deficit is already about three times that size. And the reality of the situation is that, assuming another stimulus package is passed, the United States could finish the year with an operating deficit that exceeds total tax receipts. Let me repeat that. The United States could finish the year with an operating deficit that exceeds total tax receipts. That's obviously completely unsustainable, and it is the fiscal policy that one typically sees in the proverbial banana republics. Now, it seems to me that we are going to see this inflation tax. Without a doubt, the politicians and policymakers will decide to continue with money creation. And that brings me back to what I have been talking about here on the program for quite a long time. If you've not already done so, consider using the two-bucket approach to manage your assets. I talk about this originally in the 2015 book, New Retirement Rules. That is available if you would like to get your complimentary copy by visiting Uh, NewRetirementRulesBook.com. The website, again, is NewRetirementRulesBook.com. I would encourage you to go get your free copy and learn about the two-bucket approach while there is still time. I will return after these words with Jeff Deist. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and joining me on today's program is returning guest Jeff Deist. Uh, Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute He is a writer, public speaker, and advocate for property markets and civil society. He also served as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to former congressman and presidential candidate, uh, Dr. Ron Paul. Uh, To learn more about the work of Mises, you can go to Mises.org, and I would encourage you to check that out. So, Jeff, first of all, welcome back to the program. Excellent. Thank you for having me. So, Jeff, for our listeners that may not be aware of uh, the Mises Institute and what they do, can you give them a bit of a background on your work? 
Well, we hope what we do is provide an alternative to traditional schools. Uh, that's really what we are. We're here to educate people about economics. And from our perspective, the profession, both as it's practiced and taught, has gone off the rails badly. Uh, it's lacking a lot of its core uh, understanding and knowledge that it used to have. And so uh, we try to be a free or exceedingly low-cost resource to people who want to use our website or come to our events or attend our online graduate program or uh, just you know read articles, view videos, whatever they might want to be. So we are um, you know we're not unbiased. We present a particular view of economics, which was uh, you know widely accepted well up into the the middle of last century, which is the Austrian School of Economics, which is a very different way of looking at at uh, the, the discipline. It's not mathematical or statistical. It doesn't try to apply the methods of the physical sciences to what is a, a social science of human action. Uh, we're not molecules or atoms, you know, it's not the same as physics or chemistry. And from our perspective, a lot of the empiricism and mathiness of supposedly mainstream economics today has really led people astray. And so if we look at uh, the profession in general, it's not doing a very good job of helping us understand the world or, or predict events or uh, model against the future. In fact, it's it's getting most of those things things very wrong. So um, we're here to uh, to provide free economics training for people who are interested. And uh, we're here to uh, tr try to bring the profession back to what ought to be its social science roots. Well, and again, the website to learn more is Mises.org, and I would encourage you to do that. So Jeff, as an Austrian economist, Give us your perspective on the radical monetary policy that we're seeing uh, this year. The, uh, I interviewed uh, uh, Peter Schiff last week, and he mentioned that 60 cents out of every dollar now spent at the federal level is actually manufactured by the Federal Reserve. Uh, what's your take on this, and what does the end game look like? Well, it's certainly a bizarre time. We've never seen anything like it. Uh, the federal government was scheduled to spend a little more than $5 trillion in fiscal 2020 and bring in maybe four so that we would have a single-year deficit of one to one and a half trillion. Well, that was before COVID, and of course, that's all blown out the window now. And so, in fact, the federal government might spend eight or nine trillion, and we don't know yet. We don't know how many more stimulus uh, checks will be sent, uh, and it might bring in it only three or four. So, we could have a situation where the amount co Congress spends in a single year, I mean, we like to think of presidents as spending, but in theory, Congress spends the money, it appropriates it. Uh, that may be larger than all tax receipts. So we could have, for the first time in our history, a federal government where its operations were more than half funded by debt. And how that happens is a little technical and a little circuitous, but basically uh, the Treasury sells new Treasury debt and the Fed uh, acts as the buyer of last resort if it needs to be. And as we've seen over the past few years, even before the COVID crisis, there have certainly been times where, where worldwide interest in, in new U.S. Treasury offerings was not so high. But nonetheless, uh, Everyone knows the Fed will step in and buy those assets so people are comfortable uh, owning them. 
and say what you will, they're at least paying a tiny amount of interest as opposed to you know, nominal negative interest on a lot of euro bonds. So from that perspective, there's a market for U.S. Treasury debt, and this is really ushering in a new era. There are a lot of people in this country who believe that government can finance its operations simply by creating money, that we don't need to resort to taxes at all. And the taxes are just sort of a regulator to keep inflation in check or to uh, prevent certain people from becoming too wealthy relative to the rest of the population, that sort of thing, as a governor. Um, I, I think this is absolutely crazy, dead wrong. And, um, you know, one of the things we try to do here is make the case that new money or new credit in society doesn't create any new wealth. It doesn't it doesn't mean that there are new goods and services. It just means there's more money. So if you add some zeros to everyone's bank account, Dennis, but you don't actually have any new goods or services in the economy, then prices simply adjust and, and we're all you know the same as we were before. But um, th this is a little bit of a mania. And so when you think that there's these brilliant people at the Fed or at the Treasury or in Congress and they're all talking to each other and figuring it out and they understand that there's some risks, but we're in a crisis, so we have to do X, Y, and Z, you know, don't be so sure. Don't be so sure that they are all talking to each other, that there really is this plan, that they really are that smart. I think what's really uh, the, the far better explanation is, is this is all political expediency and trying to just kick the can down the road another three months or six months. Um, and that's no way to run an economy. So, Jeff, is it your view that if this policy uh, is continues to be pursued, just just you know money creation, essentially, uh, that we will have to see hyperinflation or how do you see this playing out? Well, I don't think we will have to see hyper price inflation. I mean, in, prices are a symptom of underlying monetary inflation. They're not the inflation themselves. And so over the years, over the decades, those two things have become conflated. Um, because what we really care about is is our savings, hopefully, and our income and our purchasing power. So um, a lot of what happens when government prints money goes into commercial banks, and some of it is lent and some of it isn't, so it doesn't all immediately flow into the private economy. And what we have to understand is that prices reflect supply and demand. Now, certainly federal banks exert a lot of upward pressure on prices, and I think that um, that's some, I think that that's wrong. I think they shouldn't have a, a target of two percent annual inflation or whatever it is, but. On the demand side, millions of Americans are out of work. No one's traveling. No one's eating out. Conferences are closed. Businesses are are laying people off. Uh, they're conducting meetings by Zoom, so people aren't eating out as much. They aren't driving as much. They certainly aren't buying as much. They aren't going on vacations. Um, all of this is hugely deflationary. So you have to look at both sides of it and say, even if even if the Fed is doing everything in its power to prevent uh, deflation in the form of lowering prices, um, there's still huge forces on the other side that want to shed debt and spend less money. That's what people naturally do in a crisis. So, as a matter of fact, holding on to money rather than spending it is the most natural of all reactions to the crisis. And much of what fiscal and monetary policy has become in the West today is an exercise in making people want to go spend. Well, 
maybe they need to save. Maybe that's actually the rational thing. And maybe the, 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 the benefit they get from saving from psychologically from having more money in the bank is, is actually worth more to them than that new Ford F-150 or whatever they want to go buy. So it's, it's very, very perverse that we insist a, an economy be built on creating demand and consumption. That This is really the, the uh, unfortunate legacy of John Maynard Keynes, who wrote such a seminal book in the 1930s, his general theory. And it's something we still struggle with today. And from my perspective, anyway, it's an enormous error. Uh, economies are built on production. Production is what gives us the ability to consume in the first place. And production requires savings and capital accumulation and some profits and all those things that we, we seem to have thrown out the window. So to what extent, Jeff, uh, there, there's no doubt that the, uh, the the lockdowns in response to COVID-19 uh, caused uh, economic damage. Many would argue, you know, damage that will, will never be repaired. Um, to what extent do you think that uh, COVID simply uh, exposed some of the flaws that already existed in the economy? And to what extent do you think it, it, it created the current economic situation? Yeah, it's probably 50-50 both. I mean, there were serious structural problems, and we started to see those cracks last fall with the repo crisis, where even after all this stimulus we'd had since 2008 and, and the Fed expanding its balance sheet in response to that crisis, we still had banks that didn't have enough overnight liquidity. I mean, it seems crazy. Uh, but nonetheless, we did. And so since 2008, all the problems created by central banking, debt, and deficits had gotten worse and grown larger, so they were never really dealt with. And um, so I would argue that to an extent, a lot of the economic growth since 2008 and that crisis was artificial. So none of that was dealt with. Um, and we had a lot of problems on the horizon even before COVID. But this is obviously a very different animal. Um, you know, this is my opinion. In my opinion, governments have overreacted to the, to the risks presented by this virus. But whether you accept that or not, clearly shutting things down is, is very, very different. We've never had anything like this in, in American history, even during World War II, even during serious influenza outbreaks, even during a polio outbreak, um, all, all kinds of infectious diseases and public health issues. We've never shut down the economy like it, it, to this degree. And so, you know, this is, in 2008, people were scrambling. There was definitely uh, uh, pain on the stock market. Some of that pain washed down to employment and jobs, but not all of it. But even during that crisis, you could go out and operate your business. I mean, if you were a restaurant and your traffic shrunk, you know, you could come up with, with ideas. You could have a coupon. You could have a two-for-one. You know, you could still go out there and operate and try things. Whereas when you literally shut down businesses by mandate and somebody like Elon Musk can't even get his uh, his factory workers assembled to produce Teslas, I mean, that's that's... You know, that's a very different animal. So you have to say that um, it's probably about 50-50 both. But so so the co the coronavirus was the precipitating factor, I would argue, but not the not the cause because it just exposed a lot of problems underneath. And it's making it worse, of course, with the with the uh, what the both the Fed and Congress are doing. Well, our guest today is Mr. Jeff Deist. He is the president of the Mises Institute. You can learn more about their work at Mises.org. And I'll continue my conversation with Jeff when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us.
You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the pleasure of chatting today with Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. He also served as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to former congressman and presidential candidate, Dr. Ron Paul. And uh, Jeff, let me just uh, jump in and kind of pick up where we left off in the last segment. Uh, we, we talked about you know, the, the, the response to, to COVID-19 and uh, as a result of this response or maybe uh, not as a result of this response, we've seen precious metals prices recently spike. So to what extent do you think all this money creation is correlated with uh, the rally that we're seeing in precious metals? Oh, no question. And I don't consider it that much of a spike. I mean, you know, we had sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars gold prior to this crisis. So going up to 2000 is not a, a, a huge increase. It's And it just shows people's nervousness. I mean, there are, there are some people who believe in holding a certain amount of precious metals, you know, maybe five or 10 percent. As, as a general rule to protect them against a serious calamity, because the one thing we do know is that over thousands and thousands of years, gold and silver have never gone to zero. They've always had at least some monetary value in human hands. They go up and down, but they've, they've never gone to zero. doesn't mean they couldn't, but relative to other kinds of money, uh, which have all ultimately gone to zero, we, you know, we have that uh, comfort. So there's a certain amount of people who just buy gold and silver as a matter of course and own it and have probably increased some of their holdings with this run-up. But I think a lot of the reason you've seen the price go up is because you've gotten the non-traditional buyers, you know, the big institutional buyers, people like Ray Dalio, who are very serious uh, fund managers and who uh, watch markets and understand what central banks do. And so they buy it as some sort of hedge against what's happening or they buy it with an eye towards selling it at a much higher price. Uh, you know, personally, I don't buy gold or silver to sell it. I I hold on to it. Um, but in the in the fund business, that's that's a different proposition. Those guys are not into um, you know watching things lose value while they own them. So I think you'll see it go higher. But I don't think um, you know we've already seen some sell-offs the other day. I think gold lost a hundred dollars or something like that. So. Uh, it's not a panacea. It's not going to make you rich overnight. You're not going to buy it at, at $2,000 an ounce and sell it for $10,000 an ounce three months from now or something like that. Because uh, you know, if something that crazy happened, who would you sell it to? Be- becomes the question. So, uh, but, you know, th- th- there's no question that I think two things. First of all, the pandemic and uncertainty in general about the economy is always the kind of thing that's going to drive more people into precious metals and raise the price. But the other is. Uh, what the Fed and what various treasuries around the world and central banks around the world have been doing makes you know big investors like Ray Dalio uh, less bullish on the dollar and and uh, stronger on gold. You know, I find it interesting, Jeff, that uh, in 2018 and 2019, I believe, according to the World Gold Council, central banks around the world collectively bought more gold in those two years than at any point, and I think they've been accumulating this year at. 35 uh, tons per month or something. So just just big numbers. So do you find it ironic that the, uh, the, the, the very organizations, institutions pursuing easy money policies are accelerating their purchases in metals? Yes, and it, it speaks volumes. In fact, it speaks far more loudly than their words. Uh, gold is always liquid on their balance sheets. It's always 
um, you know, easily convertible into other currencies. Um, if they all thought the dollar was so great, they could increase their U.S. dollar holdings instead of buying gold, but they choose to buy gold. So uh, gold, you know, has this stubborn tendency to be money, and they know that, and they know that it's always a way to shore up their balance sheets against Forex risk and that sort of thing um, relative to holding you know, paper currencies of, you know, the Swiss francs or Chinese yuan or American dollars or whatever. Now, they're buying dollars, too, and they probably should because I think Amer American dollars going to do pretty well over the next – in the short term. Uh, but it, it is interesting. It, it's fascinating, actually. If you ask bankers, they'll say, well, you know, we central bankers, I should say, well, we don't really hold it for monetary purposes. It's just, you know – uh, well, then why do you hold it? And it's this useless relic. Why do you hold it at all? So it's it's a, it's really fascinating to look at. Jeff, I read your piece uh, titled Why Fed Bugs Really, Really Hate Gold. I thought it was great, by the way. And in it, uh, you quote uh, Judy Shelton, who actually is a Trump nominee to the uh, Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And she said, people call me a gold bug. And I think, well, does, what does that make them? A Fed bug. And uh, I thought it was a great quote. And with a nominee like Judy Shelton with, with uh, this radical monetary policy, do you see the United States or any other country at some point in the relatively near future returning to some type of gold standard? No, I think it's, it's too late. Um, the amount of gold that the United States owns in its treasuries is, is hard to know. But um, it's certainly not enough to be redeemable for dollars in, you know, except at some you know, huge, huge higher price. So I don't think we'll ever go back to a, a time when national governments, U.S. or otherwise, you know, will give you, will allow you to redeem physical paper in gold. Because I don't think they want us using gold as money. I don't think they want... Uh, moving it around, and, and I don't think they want to be exposed for how much they actually have in their vaults because it's, it's diff again, difficult to tell. So I, I think what, what m could happen is that gold and potentially cryptos as well and silver as well will, could be forced into a black market of sorts where if we have problems with various currencies – and people who aren't fortunate enough to live in the United States, you know, find the exchange rate for dollars in their currency very unfavorable. Um, you could see people on an underground level using, once again, using gold and silver and cryptos to, to buy stuff. So that's certainly not unthinkable. But I, I think that'll happen before governments and central banks ever give up the ghost and say, OK, we're going back on a gold standard. I, I don't think that's politically possible anymore. So, Jeff, uh, give me your take. Uh, you know, we're entering a, uh, uh, an election. Well, we've been in an election cycle. It's just intensifying here. There certainly over the past uh, decade or so has been a move, particularly maybe among millennials, to uh, uh, be more anti-capitalism and more pro-socialism. So uh, tell me whether or not you agree with that and, and what you think is driving that. Well, you know, it's tough. We're in a tough situation in, in the United States and in the West. And uh, for a lot of people, that makes them clamor for more government. Uh, they want um, the federal government to take a, a more robust role in unemployment and uh, uh, making things free, whether that's housing or medical care or education or whatever it is. And you know, you and I might know in our hearts, and we might argue that uh, 
market prices are the way you increase quality and reduce the the cost of things, and that when when the government middleman gets involved, everything gets worse and more expensive. And I think we've certainly seen that in healthcare, uh, inarguably. But uh, a lot of people, are, you know, especially people under forty, have been raised in an environment where capital, capitalism's been demonized in their textbooks, uh, in their media, and they're they're looking for something new. And I don't blame them for looking for something new because the kind of cronyism or neoliberalism we've we've had the last few decades hasn't worked very well for most people. And um, so, you know, I don't I don't blame the impulse to to think that something's deeply wrong with all this debt and, um, you know, all the, the high cost of education, high cost of medical care, and seemingly uh, lower purchasing power and saving power of middle-class folks. I don't blame people for questioning all that. I think that's healthy and justified. But, the, you know, one of the reasons we're here at the Mises Institute is to try, try to help people with these intellectual errors that sometimes occur when people go looking, and there's always a ready politician or a ready ideologue or a ready professor to say, hey, look, socialism, you know, the free stuff. Um, and, that you know, that's a disastrous path, and we, ha- we owe it to everyone to, to do our best to avoid it. So where do you see things going politically uh, this year and, uh, you know, may- maybe looking ahead uh, one more election cycle? Do you have any, any forecasts or predictions? Hmm. Um, I think Trump basically kneecapped the the GOP, and I think personally that's a healthy thing. I don't think the Republican Party has really stood up for ownership or capitalism or property, and so I have no particular truck with them. Um, so he's not a Republican. He's really an independent populist. Uh, whether he gets reelected or not, I can't say because I was wrong in 16. Uh, I thought Hillary would win. So I don't know. And you shouldn't listen to me or anybody else because nobody knows. <laughs> but um, I do think that Texas and Florida are likely to become blue states in the near term, and that will signify the end of the Republican Party as a national electoral force because once you have all this electoral college votes – the left will be able to drop its campaign against the Electoral College because it'll be winning it. Uh, so, the, you know, once they have California, New York, Florida, and Texas, it's awfully hard when you look at the math to, to win a national election. So what I, hope, what I hope happens is that the better Republicans who understand uh, capitalism and property a little better become a, a more ferocious minority party and assert themselves at the state and local level. That's, that's how I'd like to see it playing out. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, according to what the clock is telling me. My guest today has been Mr. Jeff Deist. Jeff is the president of the Mises Institute. I would encourage you to check out the website at Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S.org. And, uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today, and thank you again to my special guest on today's program, Mr. Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute. You know, in my conversation with Jeff, you probably recall him stating that the reality of the situation is that the United States this year, this fiscal year, could finish the year 
with an operating deficit that exceeds total tax receipts. That's simply remarkable when you think about it, and it's completely unsustainable. Think about this. We not only spent all the tax receipts, but we spent more than that again. And I was talking in the first segment about the fact that state and local governments, many of them are in dire need of a bailout. In fact, many of those in need of a bailout, many of those cities in need of a bailout have been managed extremely poorly, and they were in a lot of trouble going into the COVID-19 situation. Now, tax revenues are down significantly. Now, I'd like to go on record as saying that should the Washington politicians decide to bail out states and cities, it's likely that many of these states and cities will require more than one bailout if they even get the first one. Why? Well, tax revenues will continue to decline. As I have reported here on the radio program in past weeks, many businesses that closed temporarily to comply with lockdown restrictions are now closed permanently. Here is an economic fact. Businesses that are permanently closed no longer pay taxes. Businesses that are closed permanently, never to reopen, don't pay taxes. The second thing that's going on, I've mentioned on the program in the past, but this is picking up steam. This trend is picking up steam, and it's not being widely reported. There is literally an exodus taking place from many states and municipalities as people are seeking out peaceful country living. Now, as people live cities, leave cities, rather, they take their tax revenues with them. They take them to another jurisdiction. Now, Jim Rickards, past guest here on the program, wrote about this and says there's hard data to support this claim that millions of Americans are fleeing the cities for the, for the suburbs or the country, and this is happening from coast to coast. If you want to rent, for example, a U-Haul trailer from New York City to the Catskill Mountains, which aren't that far away, or you want to rent a U-Haul trailer from Los Angeles to, say, Sedona, Arizona, you're going to pay four to five times as much to move from the city to the country than if you're moving in the other direction. Now, Rickards points out that we really haven't seen a shift like this since the 1930s when we had what is now known as the Dust Bowl migration. People moved out to California at that point looking for jobs in the agricultural industry. Now, here we are 90 years later, and we're seeing another migration, but this one's moving in the opposite direction. Now, why is this happening? Well, Rickards points out there's probably three reasons. One, millennials are getting older. The first of the millennial generation will turn 40 in a couple years, and while it's pretty normal for people who enjoy living in the city in their 20s or even 30s, these same people decide that they don't want to live in the city anymore as they approach 40. So some of this was likely going to happen anyway. The second reason is that there's this thing called the pandemic. And highly 
populated areas are likely more dangerous when it comes to virus transmission. So some people are looking to minimize that risk by moving to less populated areas. And finally, the riots. You know, peaceful protests are protected by the Constitution. Peaceful protests against injustices should be supported. But no one has the right to loot stores and burn buildings, and we shouldn't even be debating that. And if you disagree with me, this is probably not the show for you to be listening to. Rickards points out in his article that calls to defund the police are making many city dwellers see the light, the writing on the wall, and they're opting to move while they can. Rickards notes that crime rates in New York are already rising, and since the riots, retirement applications among police officers have increased by 400%. See, no matter what the amenities are in this city, if citizens perceive it not to be safe, many will understandably opt to move, and that's exactly what is going on. And from a tax revenue basis and standpoint, it will be devastating to these cities. But Rickards points out it goes deeper than that. The cities are where 80% or more of the population economic in output, rather, job creation and research and development are centered. And you have to ask, who's leaving the cities? Well, the short answer is it's the people who can't. It's the talent, it's the money, it's the energy, it's the people you want to keep in your cities that are leaving. And we've got, of course, this whole work-from-home model A lot of corporations are saying and realizing they don't need a bunch of real estate on 53rd and Park Avenue. They can do a floor of shared conference facilities with a shared receptionist and have everybody work from home. So the commercial real estate market faces some strong headwinds as well. That will further diminish tax revenues to these cities and states. So the bottom line is this. This is going to be a substantial drag on economic recovery based on this migration out of the cities. It's a really big story that you're not hearing much about. So the facts are pretty clear. One bailout of states and cities will likely have to lead to another. And if you're a saver or you're an investor... You'll be paying for the bailout via the inflation tax as it's likely more money will be created to fund the bailouts. That will mean your savings in the future won't buy what it buys today. Now, there is still some time to protect yourself, to take action, to educate yourself. And if you've not already already done so, you should get a copy of the New Retirement Rules book where the two-bucket approach is laid out in detail We'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the book. All you have to do is go to newretirementrulesbook.com to request your copy. The website, again, newretirementrulesbook.com. Also, don't forget, there are resources at our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. And you can also now download the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app where you can get our podcast, you can get our weekly newsletter, Just go to mobile dot 
retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the app. Again, that is mobile.retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and you can download the app. We'll notify you about when our weekly webinar is post posted, when our podcast is posted, and when the newsletter is posted. Again, that is mobile.retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's the program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. Talk to you then.